0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Michael Ian Black, a reasonable person who had any impulse control at all, would go, you know what I'm not going to (laughs) do? That and more. But before that, boy, do we have a lot of live shows coming up. Holy cow, we are really back with Risk Live. You can catch Risk in Los Angeles on April 12th at 7 p.m. Pacific Time at Hotel Cafe. Then on April 21st, Risk is back in New York at Caveat on the Lower East Side at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And in May, we are in Portland, Oregon on May 6th and in Seattle, Washington on May 7th. Now, tickets for any of those shows are always at risk-show.com tour, and if you live in Portland, Oregon, or Seattle, Washington, pitch us your stories, and you might end up on stage in one of those shows. You can find all that you need to know about pitching us at risk-show.com submissions. Many people get up at these shows and they've never told a story before we help people workshop their stories we give folks lots of support going up to doing the shows and uh, we'd like to hear all kinds of stories from all kinds of walks of life so if you know someone have them pitch us if you want to pitch us (laughs) find us at risk-show.com slash submissions Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Brian Eno and David Byrne behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Self-Esteem. We could also call all of my therapy sessions that. Well, what should we talk about today? It's always a good time to focus on self-esteem. One thing I am feeling better about lately is being able to do these live shows again. Just the process this morning of reaching out to people in Seattle and Portland to ask people to pitch us for our May shows coming up there. It feels invigorating to be thinking, oh my gosh, we're doing this. We're starting to travel again, tour again, and starting up the L.A., the monthly show there again. Now, there's a couple of stories in this episode that only Patreon members will have heard these before, most likely. We do this occasionally where we like to give people a peek of some of the stuff that's in our huge collection of bonus material over there on Patreon. And we have a completely new story at the end of the episode here. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Hallie Haglund. She is a writer for The Daily Show and Problem Areas on HBO and The G Word on Netflix. But before that, we're going to hear from my old friend, Michael Ian Black, fellow member of my old comedy troupe, The State, If you don't know Michael from his stand-up, from Wet Hot American Summer, Reno 911, he has also written some extraordinary books. A Better Man, a book about contemporary issues around masculinity. You're Not Doing It Right, essays about marriage and adulthood. And he writes a lot of amazing books for kids, too. So anyway, you can find him on Twitter, at Michael Ian Black, And this amazing story was recorded all the way back in 2013 when Risk visited Brown University in Rhode Island, right there in one of their big lecture halls. So without further ado, here he is now. This is Michael Ian Black with a story we call Wild Wings in Ecstasy.
2: My story uh, is really about shame and so many levels of shame. An almost unbelievable amount to me that I would willingly subject myself to such shame, but I I did. Very recently. (laughs) Within about a month ago. It starts in a shameful enough place which is that I notice in my drive through town that uh, Buffalo Wild Wings has opened up which if you don't know, it's a chain of uh, fast food, they sell Buffalo Wings and I think to myself I'd like to go to that place shame about a week later I'm home, and I think to myself, now would be the perfect time to go to Buffalo Wild Wings. And so I do, and I go to Buffalo Wild Wings, and it's, it's like a sports bar, basically. There's just screens everywhere. I, I, you know. I, but I, I don't belong there, really. But I like Buffalo Wings so very much <laughs> that I decide that this is the right place for me, and I'm seated. And then the next level of shame happens, which is that I'm eating at Buffalo Wild Wings, I'm eating buffalo wings. And the busboy comes by, and he goes, Hey, you're my in Black. And I go, Yes, I am. And I'm deeply ashamed (laughs) that I have been recognized eating by myself at Buffalo Wild Wings. The next level of shame occurs about a week after that when I think to myself, you know what I could go for right now? (laughs) Some Buffalo Wild
3: Wings.
2: (laughs) But I'm thinking to myself, I can't go because there's a chance that busboy will be working there and he will see me eating there for the second time in a week and go, that fucking loser from TV (laughs) is eating at Buffalo Wild Wings again. And I have to balance to myself my, the potential shame of being recognized again at Buffalo Wild Wings versus my desire for Buffalo Wings. And I decide to myself, he's probably not working. I'm going to go to Buffalo Wild Wings. And I go, and I walk in, and the first thing that happens is the busboy goes, hey, man. And I feel so deeply ashamed at that moment. Not only because I'm meeting at Buffalo Wild Wings, but because I'm carrying with me my brand new uh, Barnes and Noble Nook (laughs) e-reader. Which is such a shameful device to have. (laughs) And worse, I'm reading The Hunger Games on it, which is just a book for teenage girls. I'm sitting there, and not 90 seconds after I'm seated, the busboy comes up, and he goes, hey, ma'am, and what I hear him say is, do you eat bugs? And I'm, I'm like, that's, I don't want, you know, I don't want to hear that question when I'm sitting at Buffalo Wild Wings, <laughs> do you eat bugs, because that really sounds like a warning to me that maybe I shouldn't be in Buffalo Wild Wings. And I say what anybody would say. I say, what? And he goes, do you need drugs? I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) He's like, because I follow your Twitter feed. And I have a pretty active Twitter feed. And occasionally on my Twitter feed, I make jokes about, hey, wouldn't it be great? Because I'm traveling around all the time if after the show somebody gave me some ecstasy or something like that. Jokes. Officer, jokes. (laughs) It's never happened. Nobody's ever given me, and I don't really do drugs. Not for lack of appetite, but just for lack of opportunity. I'm a middle-aged man who lives in the suburbs. Like, where am I gonna, you know, I'm not gonna hang out at the high school and be like, you know, you wanna find (laughs) me. So... He's like, I, f- I read your Twitter feed. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like, so, you know, do you need drugs? And I go, yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: Why not? You know? Shame. And he's speaking it like full volume. He's like, so what do you need? Do you need, like, ecstasy or do you need, like, what? You know, I'm like, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. I'm like, that'd be great. And he goes, all right. And he writes down his number and his name on a cocktail napkin from Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> it slides it across the table to me. And I take it. And then he goes about his business and I read The Hunger Games and enjoy my Buffalo Wings. Thinking to myself, I am never going to call this guy. How could I? That would be absurd. Less than a day later, I call him. I don't call him, though, because I don't want to talk to him on the telephone. There's just no way. But I text him. I have the texts. The shame in these texts is unbelievable. From both ends. It starts with me going, hey, it's Michael Ian Black. (laughs) Are you around later? (sighs) He responds, just get out of work. I'm at the mall getting some drinks. <laughs> Who the fuck goes from Buffalo Wild Wings to the mall to get drinks? I'm just going to pop into <laughs> Banana Republic and then get some drinks while I'm at the mall. He goes, I'll be around town all year. LOL he writes LOL what happens at the end of the year with this guy? (laughs) does he have a contract? (laughs) I'm like well my year's up and then he writes what's up? what the fuck do you think is up? (laughs) and now my antennae are sort of quivering a little bit because I'm like I'm thinking to myself if he's writing what's up He wants me to commit in text that I want to buy drugs from him because he's working for the fucking cops. Because you know how it is. With the cops, they got these new programs where they, with the narcs, they they have them as busboys at Buffalo Wild Wings. (laughs) Those hotbeds of drug activity where they just wait for unsuspecting basic cable stars to come in. close the trap, so I'm like, well, I'm not gonna write, well, I'm, you know, I'm paranoid, but not so paranoid that I'm not gonna continue the conversation. So I write, just wondering if there's a good time-slash-day to come by. It's like we are arranging for blowjobs. Because we're being cryptic with each other. It's very blowjobby, you know what I mean? So he gives me, and then he writes back, he gives me his hours when he's working, and he says, I hope you're not working with the cops. That would be such a sad news headline. (laughs) And I'm thinking, does he think I'm working with the Like I'm best known for, like, being on VH1. Like, it's so unlikely that VH1 is inserting narcs with the cops, and they're like... So... Then he writes something which really depresses me. He writes, you're good for the money? And I know I can't keep a television show on the air. I know that. I am forever getting canceled off the television. But buddy, I'm good for the money. I eat at Buffalo Wild Wings. I'm pretty sure I'm good for the money. He writes, hey, I found some E and mushrooms. LOL. Would either of those interest you? I write, sure, I'll take both. (laughs) Because I'm like, what am I going to get this opportunity again? So we arrange to meet at... The Buffalo Wild Wings because that's our place and I'm like I'll just come to the parking lot and we can like conduct our business transaction there and he's like park around back I know all right so at the appointed time and day it's a Monday drive to Buffalo Wild Wings and I drive around back And then we sort of text each other and he writes, I'm in Buffalo Wild Wings right now. And now I'm worried there's like a sting operation. I'm going to walk into Buffalo Wild Wings in the middle of the afternoon and I'm going to get gang tackled by cops and Chris Hansen is going to be there. (laughs) And it's going to be horrible. So I'm like, why don't you come outside? So he comes outside and I'm sort of watching him in the rear view mirror and he's like this and he's sort of looking around and I get out and I'm like, like "Done." and, and you know it's just so sad and shameful the way we're conducting ourselves. So he's like, where do you want to do this? And again, it's like it, I'm like, let's do it in our car. And it's so blowjobby the way we're talking to each other. We get into the car, and I'm like, and, I, and I've never bought drugs before from somebody. You know, I don't know how to do this, and I don't know what the etiquette is. And I'm like, so what's up? You know, now I'm being that cryptic. You know, I'm like, how are you? You know? He's like, yeah, I broke my wrist. And he got a big cast on his wrist. I'm like, "Oh, well, how did that happen? Snowboarding. Sad. It's like, yeah, now I can't even work at Buffalo Wild Wings anymore. And I'm like, yeah, you can't. And he's like, so... I'm like, so... And he's like, I got the stuff. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, it's 80 bucks. And I go, okay. And I take out my wallet and I show him I have, like, all these 20s in there because I just go to the bank. I'm like, well, let me just get four of these for you because I'm good for the money. <laughs> and we conduct our business. And he gives me the things. And then he goes uh, back into Buffalo Wild Wings uh, with his friend. And as I'm driving home... I get a a follow-up text from him that says, Did I tell you about my prison internship? (laughs) He was an intern at a prison, and he goes, LOL, and I was worried you were setting me up. It was nice to meet you. Let me know how they work. All right. So as I said, this is a Monday. The only thing that's significant about this day is that I had committed a few weeks earlier to performing at a benefit show for a comedian who died. His name is Greg Giraldo. Some of you may know him. He died, yeah. Oh, sure. (laughs) Terrific comedian, very nice guy uh dead from drugs OD had a severe drug problem and I have committed to performing that evening at a benefit for him having just bought drugs shame <laughs> a reasonable person who had any impulse control at all would go you know what i'm not going to do I'm not going to take drugs right before I go on stage at the Greg Giraldo show. (laughs) Both for professional reasons and for just good etiquette. That's what a reasonable person would have done. But a reasonable person doesn't have impulse control like I have where I've got these drugs in my pocket having not taken these drugs in years and years and years and I'm like well I can't not take the drugs because I have them. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that I have them is like I cannot wait. Any time, I have to do them now, despite the fact that it's the most obscene thing I can do. <laughs> so, I'm trying to like time it in such a way that it won't totally fuck me up as I'm performing at the Greg Giraldo benefit. So I take one hours before, thinking to myself, it'll be gone by the time <laughs> I perform. I've got four. I do do not take all four. I'm telling you right now, I do not take all four. I take it and I'm by myself in my house because I can't not do it. And it's pretty good. Not great, pretty good. And I'm like writing friendly emails to people I haven't talked to in a long time. (laughs) I'm listening to Aphex Twin and I'm having a fine time. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I'm fine, this feels great, I don't want this to stop. Despite the fact that I have a Greg Giraldo benefit in a few hours, I think Greg would appreciate the irony of this. (laughs) Having met Greg twice in my life, I'm like, Greg would appreciate this very much. I, I'm like, I have three more. What I will do is I will take one of them and put it in my pocket, and I will take the other two and leave them in my house because I know myself well enough to know that if I take the other two, I will do all four. <laughs> I take the one, I go to the thing, I take it because I don't want these good feelings to end. I'm on stage performing for the Greg Giraldo audience who I think is largely friends and family. It's a very poorly attended event, all of whom know that he died from drugs. And it, it's, I feel amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes pretty well. And I wish there was an ending where I collapsed, <laughs> because that would have served me right. But what uh, with the lesson that I took away from this, is that drugs are, are, are very fun. <laughs> Thank you guys
0: very much.
4: admired my dad's persistence. I think my dad's persistence isn't just a virtue, it's sort of a necessity. He's like 5'8 and he has these skinny little bird legs and he sort of walks with a hunch and um, he's deaf from fighting in Vietnam, uh, which I don't exactly get because he was in the JAG program so you're just a lawyer? <laughs> but uh, that's his story. Um <laughs> So growing up, my brother and I used to like to put our hands in front of his ears so his hearing aid would go, and he would yell, hey, knock it off. But because of his hearing, he can never really gauge how loud his voice should be. So he always winds up talking so low that you can't really understand anything that he's saying. In a crowd, you'd miss him entirely if it weren't for the incredibly short purple running shorts that he really likes to wear when he's off the clock. (laughs) So I think without my dad's persistence, he never would have survived trying to become a judge. So at 63... My dad was a lawyer at a firm that he had started exactly half of his life ago. And over the years, the firm had grown into this well-known Denver staple for um, democratic causes. They did a lot of pro bono cases, they worked with legal aid, a lot of bleeding heart liberal stuff that I don't really remember the details of because during most of those years, I was a teenager and cared exclusively about how I looked and Tori Amos. But the firm's political affiliation was never really a problem until my dad told his partners that he was going to go for a judgeship. And in Colorado, the governor has final say in all judicial appointments. And at that time, our governor was Bill Owens, who was like a Republican Republican. (laughs) Um, So my dad spoke to his partners, and, you know, these guys... Good friends for years told him he didn't have a chance, that he was foolish for trying. And you know, my dad talks about it now, and he said, I knew it wasn't foolish to try. You know, It was hard, but that didn't mean I shouldn't try. And you know, that's sort of what he expects out of everyone. When I was a senior in high school, he finally got me a car. It was an 83 Toyota Celica. I don't know if you guys are familiar with those cars. They have the lights that go like this when you turn them on. Um, But it was uh, also a stick shift, and I had never driven a stick shift. So that night, on the icy streets of our neighborhood, he gave me a crash course that involved a lot of stalling and like, maybe a little crying. (laughs) And then at the end, he said all right, you're on your own. Good luck getting to school tomorrow. (laughs) And, you know, I think he has sort of this sadistic need to make people do things that they don't really think they can do. But it's like, it's good to be challenged like that because the next day, I did make it to school alone. It took me an hour and a half to drive three miles, (laughs) but I made it to school alone. (laughs) I don't know what it takes to become a judge in most places, but in Colorado, it's like taking a spinning class. Like, a, at first you think, oh, it's it's a stationary bike, you know. The piece of equi- exercise equipment so easy that, like, even old people can use it. And then, you know, a third of the way through, you kind of just wish you'll die so that you don't have to finish the class. So... The first thing you have to do to become a judge in Colorado, you just have to fill out an application. It's totally simple. And then politically appointed nominating committee goes through all the applications, and hundreds of them, and selects 10 top candidates. And then they interview the 10 candidates and pick their favorite three. Those three meet privately with the governor, and he makes the final call. So my dad made the top 10 no problem, and then a list of three. And then the day before his private meeting with Governor Owens, his firm sued the governor. (laughs) So it was all over the papers. Um, Firm sues governor. (laughs) That was the evocative headline. (laughs) Because the Denver Post isn't exactly the New York Post. (laughs) But it it wasn't like the governor didn't deserve it. They had launched this really sloppy program to get medical records online. And because of just like a simple computer glitch, thousands of Medicaid beneficiaries lost their coverage. And not just for like a day while the computers were out, they lost them for months and months and months. So my dad went to have his meeting with Bill Owens and he described his mood as cantankerous. (laughs) And my dad did not get the job. But then a couple months later, another judgeship opened up. My dad decided that, like, this time, he wanted to show the governor that he didn't have to be afraid of him just because he was a Democrat. Because, like, above all, my dad is... He's not, like, blindly partisan or anything. He doesn't buy into that bullshit. He's, like, very thoughtful and fair-minded. Like... I remember the first time I got caught drinking, I was in sixth grade, and (laughs) I was hanging out with the mature girl in our class, and uh, one night her mom came home early to find us with a duffel bag full of liquor in her pool, skinny dipping with some eighth graders. (laughs) So, (laughs) she called my dad, My dad picked me up and drove me home in silence and then he sat with me at the kitchen table for an hour as I sobbed and told him how embarrassed and sorry I was. And he said, good, (laughs) (laughs) you should feel bad about this. You should feel really, really bad about this. And I still think that a father's profound disappointment was a very fair-minded punishment. You know, I will say 10 years later when he picked me up from jail because I had gotten a DUI, he delivered a similar form of incredibly fair-minded punishment. (laughs) So... uh, In order to prove to Bill Owens that he wasn't just some partisan hack, he decided to enlist the help of really important Republicans from Colorado to vouch for him. So he started calling up conservatives that he didn't even know to introduce and make a case for himself, hoping that they would pass on their positive impressions to the governor. He wound up getting a recommendation from the governor's personal counsel. He had lunch with the head of the Chamber of Commerce and nailed down his support. And he even uh, won the favor of the Republican who runs the National Western Stock Show in Colorado. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with this, but in Colorado, it's an incredibly big deal. Everybody goes. It's a festival once a year. You can see guys riding on bulls and children riding on sheep. (laughs) And if you want to buy any livestock while you're there, it's there. It's available. So, like, the head of the stock show is the ultimate get. I knew how uncomfortable this made him to call up all these people and tell them how great he was and why they should support him because my dad really isn't one to sing his own praises because he's not really one to sing anyone's praises (laughs) but again my dad made the list of three and again he had his meeting with bill owens and again bill owens said i don't think so so then fast forward a few months and the third judgeship opened up and this time my dad wrote the governor before his interview and said that he knew he was probably never gonna appoint him, but that the governor's staff had always been really kind to him and really dealt very fairly with him, and you know he just wanted to thank him for that. Bill Owens actually wrote back and he said, you know, Norm, you're a real classy guy. And then he rejected him a third time. <laughs> so when Owen's term ended, he was succeeded by Bill Ritter, who was a Democrat. And my dad was the first judge that Bill Ritter appointed. And it was a really exciting time. I remember I flew home for the swearing-in ceremony, and it was, felt like all these important Denver people were there, even the celebrity news anchor Bertha Lynn had showed up, which <laughs> felt like a very big deal. <laughs> The only thing that slightly colored the day was when the sky came up to me and he said, Hey, do you remember me? And I said, I don't think so. And he said, How's your DUI lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you sort of scrubbed those faces from your memory. <laughs> but after the ceremony, my dad showed us his new courtroom, and he let me and my brother sit on the bench and bang the gavel that my mom had given him as a congratulatory present. And then he yelled, uh, this whole court is out of order, a lot. (laughs) And then he, uh, we all tried on his robe and took pictures. (laughs) But I was so proud of him. Uh, But I probably wouldn't tell him that because that's not really our style. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Hallie and I talked about her story before the show, but she didn't tell me that celebrity news anchor Bertha Lynn was going to be in
3: it. (laughs) Um. So we'll let it be. I not stop us,
0: so we'll let it be. This is risk. This is 10cc behind me now and we just heard from Haley Hagland who you can find on Twitter at Haley Hagland and before that a little interstitial by our editor John Lasala. And folks, did you know that you can hire me personally over at my website, kevinallison.com? I help people prepare solo shows or artist statements or prepare for job interviews. Sometimes help people start off with their podcasts, you know, do consulting around that or prepare some of the chapters of their memoir. Uh, prepare for a wedding toast. Sometimes people just want to chat with me about where they're at in their kink exploration or making a creative, you know, a shift in their creative life. I was being interviewed on a radio program last night and the interviewer asked what my favorite part of my job is and and I held my tongue I knew I couldn't say this because I knew they wanted me to say something about risk specifically but the truth is that this one-on-one training has become one of my very 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 favorite parts of my job meeting people who listen to the show and who want to be creative in their own way somehow. Uh, You know, it might be that they want to prepare something that they could pitch to the show itself, but oftentimes it's something entirely different. And I just find it so fascinating because I find people so fascinating. I had a one-on-one session with an artist recently, you know, a conceptual artist. We were just brainstorming for an hour on what some of her upcoming projects might be. And uh, I just had such a blast. So look me up for that. I am at KevinAllison.com. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a Great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York, some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Our final story on this week's episode is an epic in a way. It's it's might not be epic in length, but it covers a long period of time. And Dia Selene first approached us about doing this story a long time ago. She is a software engineer and virtual reality consultant. You can find her on Twitter. At Dia Celine, and here she is now. This is Dia Celine Gonzalez with a story we call Rebirth.
1: Around 2010, when I still had Facebook, I get a notification that it was Cesar's birthday. Cesar is a friend from college, a really good guy. I write a message on his wall, and when scrolling down, I see that he also has a message from Carla. Carla is a former classmate of mine from high school. I realize that the two of them know each other. Holy crap, I got nauseous, and this feeling lasted for at least three days. Let me go back to 1986. I am 10 years old and I am in fifth grade. I grew up in a small suburban town in Venezuela and all my life I attended this very small Catholic school. So I knew all of my classmates since we were four years old. I was a very quiet and shy girl, an excellent student, and I didn't have a big group of friends, but it didn't matter. I was very happy being this under-the-radar lonely girl. Now, my parents bought me a journal. It was all pink. The covers were padded, so it was very satisfying to touch. The pages were also all pink with hearts of all different sizes. I loved it, so I carried it with me all the time. I would put it in my backpack. Now, sometimes at home, I would have this outburst of anger and frustration. I don't know why. And I would start punching the walls and the closet. I didn't know it at that time, but this was because of my situation at home. I realized after years of therapy. At home, my father was molesting me, and my mother was ignoring me. But at that time, without knowing the source of this anger, I directed it towards the nuns and the Catholic Church. I would write things in my journal like, fuck the nuns and the Catholic Church. The teacher is a Buddha, the teacher is a whore, and so on. One day in class, we're doing a group activity. My team finished early, and so we started chatting. I told them about the poetry collection. At the end of my journal, on the very last pages, I would copy poems that I found in the library. And I was also writing my own poems with teenager topics like the meaning of life, finding love. <laughs> so. We got very excited about the journal. I took it out and we were looking at it. We were so into it that we didn't realize the teacher was approaching us. One moment, we were all looking down, our heads all together in a circle. And the next moment, we're looking up at the teacher standing next to me with the journal in her hand. She didn't say anything. She just turned around, walked away and put the journal on her desk my chest started hurting I was breathing really fast even my stomach was hurting I was having a panic attack moments later we are this time in a in another subject and doing an individual activity I couldn't concentrate Because I could see my journal on the desk. I could almost reach and grab it, but I wouldn't. So the teacher comes to her desk. She sits down, leans back on her chair, and starts reading my journal. I started trembling. My hands were shaking. I couldn't hold the pen or even write. I don't remember what I was doing in the exercise. This woman was... Tall. She had hair to her shoulders. It was brown. She didn't dress very elegantly. Sometimes she would use a staple gun to staple her jeans when they were too long. Well, when she's reading the journal, I see her smiling. And I'm like, Why, is she laughing at me? Or is she smiling like sarcastically when adults tell children, hey, little kid, you are in so much trouble. Again, she doesn't say anything, just gets up and leaves the classroom with my journal. She left the door open, so I was able to peek and see her in the hallway, calling other teachers and nuns and passing my journal around. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but then at one point, Teacher Elena says, "Tenemos que expulsar esta muchacha inmediatamente." We need to expel this girl immediately. Moments later, then, Anon is calling my name and escorting me downstairs. It was a dark room. I remember one or two lights, and they were dim. I remember seeing mostly the silhouettes of their faces. We sat around this long rectangular table and the trial begins. What do you have to say for yourself? We read everything. And I replied mostly with monosyllables. Yes, no, I don't know. They brought witnesses. One by one, they paraded the girls that I mentioned in my writings. And it was innocent things like, Andrea taught me this song, but they wouldn't tell the girls. They would ask them, Confiesa, leímos todo lo que ustedes hicieron juntas en el diario. Confess, we know what you did together because it's in her diary. And the poor girls were just crying their hearts out and saying, I didn't do anything. By the way, I didn't cry. I think that's because I was dissociating, I realize now as an adult. I remember not feeling the pressure of my body on the chair or my arms on the table. And I guess I also had some sense of pride because I was telling myself, Dioseline, don't cry. Don't give them the satisfaction. The nun that was presiding the trial at one point asks me to stick out my tongue. And when I do, she goes, Ew, It is green. It is dirty. And this is because of the devil inside of you and all the sins that you've committed. Can you see? She asks the other teachers. And they go, Oof, yeah, it's even putrid. And even to this day, I I have almost an obsession. Almost an obsession about scraping my tongue when I brush my teeth. And I'm very sensitive about bad breath. At the end, they tell me, out of the goodness of her heart, we're not going to expel you, but you are suspended for three days. and. Here is a letter for your parents. They have to come meet us tomorrow. And we're keeping the diary. That night, I waited until almost bedtime to talk to my mom and give her the letter. She was shocked, but I just ran to bed. The next morning, I am standing, looking, staring at the front door. I remember then hearing the steps approaching And thinking, okay, I think they're back. They're coming back. Then I hear the jingling of keys. They're opening the door. And do I hear them laughing? That's weird. And they open the door and my parents enter. And yes, they actually relaxed. And they're smiling. My dad was the one that talked to me. He kneeled down at my eye level and said, the only thing that you did wrong was bring your journal to school because only supplies belong there. Do you understand? Apart from that, you did nothing wrong. We asked the nuns whether you said anything rude or whether you behave in a bad way, but they said, no, she didn't. But look at her diary, look at everything she wrote. And we replied, no this is her personal diary and nobody has the right to read it. He promised me that they didn't read it. He goes, yeah, you're suspended for three days, but don't worry. You're going to be back and then everything will be normal. Here's your diary. And you see how abusers mess up with your mind. Here's this man who was making me feel terrible at home and scared, but sometimes, in public, he would defend me and even make me feel safe. The first time I realized that things had changed was when I, after three days of suspension, go back to school and ask the boy sitting next to me, Luis, if I could borrow a pen or pencil or something like that, and he says no. My mom told me not to talk to you or let you touch my things because you're a sinner and you're going to help. So that's how I became the most famous sinner in the school. Some kids would even tell me, hey, the teacher told me not to hang out with you and not to talk to you because you're a sinner. Yes, and you're a bad influence. One day we are in math class and the teacher says, hey, find a partner to do this exercise. When I turned around, I froze. Who's gonna want to work with me? Nobody. But then I spotted this girl, Danny, and I think, yes, she might want to work with me. She's a very pretty girl with very long hair, dark brown. And she was very short like me and super cute. Also an excellent student, but also she kept to herself. So when I go and talk to her and ask, hey, can I work with you? She simply said, yes, bring your desk. And that meant the world to me. Made me so warm in my heart. She didn't have to do it. And she didn't mention the suspension, the reputation, nothing. And you know what? We clicked. We immediately became best friends. She didn't judge me. Actually, I think of Danny as almost a mentor during those years. She was very strong and almost seemed like an adult. I think it's also because she was going through difficult things at home. Well, that's when the lesbian rumors started. You know, Catholics, homophobes, very conservative, for them, that's the ultimate insult. All the kids would yell at us, especially in recess. Hey, look at those lesbians. Don't touch them. It might be contagious. So all the time, my social life consisted of hanging out with Danny. She didn't have to because this all started with me, but she stayed my friend. One day in class, one of the girls stands up and says, everybody, Today is my birthday, party at home, you are all invited. Danny and I decided to go, and when we get there together, it was awkward. We tried introducing ourselves to people and talking, but nobody wanted to talk to us. And so we ended up by ourselves in a corner. When we hear them from the other side of the room Alejandro, one of the boys, yelling, Tremendo Levante, Dani! And Dani immediately got so mad. She looked like she wanted to punch the wall and immediately. And I was confused because I didn't even know what that phrase meant. And she explained to me, that's a slang for romantic conquest. So you're supposed to be that person, the one that I'm seducing tonight. I think she would have fought with them, she would have get in a fight. But we just decided to leave. And instead of being angry, I felt profoundly sad because Alejandro was my crush since I was four years old. He broke my heart that night. Year later, in sixth grade, the teacher calls me aside and says, Yo Celine, stop doing what you're doing in the bathroom with Danny or I will make sure to expel you. And I go, "What do you mean?" And she says, "Don't pretend that you don't know what I'm talking about. You and Danny are masturbating each other in the bathroom." What happened was that the name calling and the bullying was so much that Danny and I looked for places to hide. At first, we would go to the chapel because nobody goes there, nobody prays. But the nuns realized that people were sneaking and started patrolling the halls. So instead, Danny and I would go to the girls' restroom and hang out by the sink. Whenever we would hear girls approaching and entering, we would run and lock ourselves in one of the stalls. We were naive and didn't realize that the girls could see our feet together. And that's when they started the rumors and this all spread around school. This all continued through high school. I even tried talking to my mom once. I told her that I was feeling really bad. I was trying to tell her that I was depressed. I didn't know that word at a time as a teenager, but I was trying to tell her how much I was hurting inside from the bullying in school. And I asked her to transfer me to another school. Her reply was, "Diosling, is not that bad. It's not really. Everybody goes through difficult things in school. This school where you're going is the best one in town, so I don't want to take you out of there. And that was it. Danny and I even also talked to the class counselor in eighth grade. The counselor is this professor that they assign to classes to be the advisor and also to teach the Bible class. We told her everything about the lesbians, name calling, the bullying, everything. And we explicitly asked her for help. And she seemed worried she said oh wow this is bad and I'm going to help you for sure the next Bible study class this teacher goes and asks everybody get on groups of four to five peoples and do this I think it was a reading of the Bible everybody in the classroom they create all the teams and Danny and I just stayed there by ourselves because, of course, nobody wanted to work with us. The professor looks at us and says, hey, no, no kids, addressing the whole class. Please work with Danny and Jocelyn. So which team is going to take them and work with them? And it was just silence. Nobody said anything. And the professor then goes and says, Oh wow, this is so sad. This is so sad. Let's continue reading the verse in the Bible. And that was it. So Danny and I, we did what we were supposed to do. We went to adults and asked for help. And nobody did. In senior year, I had the highest GPA. So technically I was the valedictorian. One day, the nun that is the director of the school enters the classroom and says, Hey everybody, I am so excited to announce who is going to give the student speech at your graduation. And that person is going to be Alexandra. They chose another girl and they completely ignored me. The nun didn't even look at me by that time the bullying wasn't really that much but instead they treated me like i didn't exist high school graduation was just regular one everybody taking photos with their favorite professors and nuns i was just relieved that i didn't have to go back there now university For summer, they organized a three-day program for new students to get to know each other. They had activities and sharing and lunches. I was petrified to go because I was still scared of being around people my age. However, when I got there, people were nice. They talked to me. They accepted me. And it was strange to me enjoying time with people my age. I felt happy, but it was almost difficult to understand. The first day of class, I am walking to my classroom. I have my backpack and I'm hunched over, looking at the ground because that's how I survived in high school. But then I see new students say hello to me. Good morning. How are you doing? That's when, like. I looked up, I remember, from the ground to the sky, and I had this serendipity moment. Of course, they don't know anything. They don't know about the suspension, the reputation. I can reinvent myself. So during college years, I flourished. I had not only one friend, but a big group of friends. I even had my first boyfriend. And if anybody saw me holding hands and walking with a girl, nobody even cared. For college graduation, they allowed me to participate and asked for my feedback. That day, when they called my name, I rushed to the stage and I'm all nervous, shaking professors' hands When one of them tells me, hey, lady, turn around for your friends. And when I do, I see that all of them had stood up and were clapping for me. (laughs) That was wonderful. So college and high school were two separate worlds for me during many years. And that's why when in 2010, I saw that in Facebook, I was nauseous because they, the two of them were colliding and things were just going to fall apart. But you know what? The world didn't explode. My college friends stayed my friends. I don't know if they learned about what happened in high school, but they're still my friends and accept me. At that time, also around those years, I started my lifelong journey in therapy to work on my traumas. And then one day I realized that I wasn't really reinventing myself in college. Instead, I was allowed for the first time to be myself. And if you're curious, Danny and I are still friends. A couple of years ago, we met in Bogotá, Colombia. And we're walking in the streets, having fun together, remembering our great time that we had together, when Danny says, we should get a tattoo. And I loved the idea. We had the same tattoo in our arms. We went through a lot of difficult and traumatic events all those years. However, the one thing that came up from it that was wonderful is this friendship. 35 years of being friends with Danny.
3: A no ver la realidad, creando excusas para no escuchar. Yo me escudaba, no reaccionaba, pero tarde temprano me tenía que marchar. Y mi madre me ayudó, al vacío me lanza Me dijo: Mi negrita con buena intención. Yo soy tu madre y quiero verte volar alto. Y no lo harás si te tengo entre mis brazos. Y yo decía: ¿Cómo carajo? Si hace esto, dejar a mi casa, a mi familia. ¡No!
0: is all for this week's episode folks this is raymar perdomo behind me now i wanted to close with a venezuelan song so the story here is that this woman raymar perdomo sang this song out on the streets about her great regret of feeling she had to leave venezuela feeling that she couldn't manage living there anymore and a viral video took off of her singing this song out on the streets, and then a bunch of stars wanted to record the song with her. The song is called Me Fui, or I Left. And, of course, we just heard from Dia Celine Gonzalez... You can find Dia Celine on Twitter at D-I-O-S-E-L-I-N. And look her up on YouTube, too. She has some incredible videos about her work all around virtual reality. Absolutely fascinating. And great work by our editor Taj Easton on that story as well. Folks, like I said earlier, those first two stories on this week's episode were originally available pretty much just to people over at patreon.com slash risk, which is where we have about 150 bonus stories and all kinds of check-ins. There's about 60 of those. There's so much wonderful content to be found if you support the show over at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Now, you should also check out our school at thestorystudio.org all kinds of workshops in storytelling for business, storytelling for performance, storytelling for personal growth, and there's our custom-tailored storytelling workshops for small businesses, big businesses, creative teams. All of that can be found at thestorystudio.org. And of course, check out our site, risk-show.com is where you'll find the tables of contents of every episode, where you can find the artists, the musicians. You'll also find out how to submit your pitches to us there and where our next live dates are happening. That's at risk-show.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at risk show. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Yeah,
5: So, I'm here in my kitchen, and the power's out, but it's like a brown out, so the appliances are like switching on and off. Like, this switch doesn't seem to do anything. Oh, there. There. That was a Cuisinart. It's annoying because I have to finish... I have to finish a risk story like tonight. I have this old wind-up flashlight kind of thing. I'm going to have a walk around and take a look at some of this stuff. Earlier, these switches were making a funny sound. Here, let's go into the bathroom here. So my bathroom and laundry room. That's my hair dryer. Is that the washing machine? going on in Old Farmville. Oh, uh, Kelly tweeted, Isn't it so annoying when you want to go to Starbucks, but the line is just so long? OMG, why? Yes. I think I'm going to retweet that, actually.